Hi, my name is Kyle Chernside, and you're listening to the Loose Connection podcast. First off, I'd like to thank everybody who's been uh, joining us and moving over maybe from signal to noise. Maybe you're just finding us. Maybe you're a new listener. Maybe you're an old listener. Maybe you're listening to this two years from now. Uh, We appreciate you. Make sure that you check out our Facebook group. Uh, Make sure that you check out our TikTok. Make sure that you check out our Instagram. We'd love for you to join the community. Give us some feedback on what you'd like to hear, who you'd like to hear it from, what we can talk about, what you don't like us talking about, episodes that you might have listened to and thought were super interesting, or episodes you listened to and thought were garbage. Um, Chris and I are really taking a, a, a leap with this one, and... We're still kind of working out the bugs and we don't know exactly where everything is going, but when he came to me with this next guest, I was super intrigued. One, because it was an old friend of his who's known Chris since they were uh, young and they grew up in Maryland together. They have a long history of working together through the band that he was in all the way, and they still talk to today. So it's a great conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it. The gentleman's name that we have on tonight is named Jeremy Willett. He's from Maryland as well. He works for a company called uh, Child Fund, and he kind of took a, a crazy route to get there. He's adopted two children from Africa of his own that he has now. Um, he was in some bands. He's got a Christian background, and he's got a super interesting outlook on uh, Christianity and religion as a whole now. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Jeremy Willett's our guest tonight. Uh, Chris and I thank you a bunch. It's Loose Connection. I'm not even going to say welcome or any of that. Second. This is Loose Connection. Loose Connection is officially Loose Connection. It is. Yes, it's still... C- it's. Definitely still kind of loose, but it's a, it's a connection. Very loose. Similar. <laughs> Hi, Jeremy. Oh, man. I'm excited a- about this podcast, man. I really am. This is going to be this is going to be gold. I know it is because sometimes you just feel like you need something. You know what I mean? Like there's too yeah. many similarities like happening in in like your day. And Chris has been amping me up about this. Like you guys have been friends forever and ever. And like I said, I've only been in the room with Chris twice and he's a brilliant dude. So when he told me about what you do and then went back, did the backstory and talked about the Christmas shows and stuff like that, I was like, holy shit, this guy is like uh, the master toolbox of cool things that you've done. (laughs) I'm looking forward to this too because a lot of what I do now is very coordinated and rehearsed and calculated you know and so the ability just to be able to have a conversation about things that matter um and not have to perform you know while doing it or be in front of a large audience that that has expectations is really really quite nice so yeah expectations but but way different (laughs) Jeremy takes me he's like, yes. so do you, do, you have, do you have a list of questions? I was like, uh, no. No. <laughs> that's Great. Not, that's not how we let's roll. Let's go. Um, well, let's, so let's set this up a little bit without uh, either boring people or going down too much of a memory lane, because I know Jeremy and I, you can sit here and reminisce all night, but uh, yeah. the context here being that Jeremy and I are basically brothers. Uh, I'm yes. li- literally closer to Jeremy than I am my own brother. Uh, we're the same age. We have uh, grew up together. Our 
uh, Jeremy's dad played uh, piano in church and in a band that my dad did sound for. So we're second generation in that then when high school came around, Jeremy started playing in bands and I started doing sound for Jeremy. We've recorded albums together. We've toured together. Um, and then we, you know, uh, got married and started doing other things. But um, that's the as shortest synopsis as I can make. Uh, so, I mean, music has been a heavy part of your career and still is just in a different avenue now, which is, you know, interesting. Um, you spent... So, how... Um, as an independent artist, um, we'll say specifically Willet, right? Because you had a couple bands like through high school and things like that before Willet. But Willet being your last name, you and your brothers, you started a band Willet. How long were you guys an independent band doing that? We did that for over 13 years together. And um, wow. it was full time. You know, it, it was one of those things where when we started, um, we said we were going to either do this all in or not do it at all. And that was the mentality of our whole life with anything we did. Um, but our dad being a piano teacher, we got free piano lessons growing up. And then um, after that, we went on to learn other instruments, guitar and drums and singing. And and um, uh, we we had really, I think, officially formed a band um, under the radar. We didn't want to tell our parents because we thought they might be upset <laughs> uh, because we were all still in like middle school and high school and stuff. And um, so we would rehearse when we got off the bus before our kids got or our kids, our parents got home from work, you know? And, um, and then finally, after a while, we would do these concerts on our front porch. Uh, and it wasn't for anybody, maybe the cars passing by, but it was just to kind of mock perform, but it was awesome. And, um, we used flashlights for our lighting rig and like cranked up these old fender amps and stuff, you know? And, uh, finally we got to this point, we went to our parents and we said, we think this might be a thing. Um, we need to pull our youngest brother out of school and take him on the road with us, you know? And, uh, <laughs> surprisingly I have, st- I still Surprise. have no idea why, but they said yes. Yeah. Yes. And Surprise. so we agreed, um, we got a 15 passenger van and loaded it with gear. And we've, we learned very early on, like if we wanted to accomplish anything, we had to do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. We knew so many friends that had just sat around waiting for a break or for somebody to pass along a demo or whatever. And that was just never our mentality. We loved music. We love live music. We love rock. And we were going to go out and do it. And so um, the first, I don't know, two or three years, we paid each other $200 a month. And um, the rest went back into the band account. And, you know, we got a better van. We got better gear, uh, better equipment. And we literally just divided fights? up the jobs. Were, were there family Great fights? Great question. Were you- <laughs> Very rarely. Um, but when we did, we we went for it. You know. Yeah. Fist that's some brother. That's some brother like that. shit. Yeah. That's yeah. That that's choked yeah. out city kick spitting. Yes. Like nasty family fight stuff. But I always wonder how the dynamic is with that. I mean, obviously, um, everyone's going to go through it. And yeah. you guys are all different ages, right? So was there yes. a hierarchy of who's going to get their ass beat first or like? <laughs> it was, was mainly, it? Uh, well, I was the oldest, so I was, you know, tasked with a lot of the responsibility and um, our middle brother, Justin. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Um, the Our middle brother, Justin, is the most like balanced and level headed of all of us. And then the youngest brother, Jordan, um, you know, he moved from Maryland to San Diego. So that can tell you everything that you need to know about him. 
you know, then mm. that's where he lives now. <laughs> he, was, mm. he was rogue, you know, and but between between Jordan and I, you could never expect what was going to happen. You know, I, I was a lead singer mentality and could feel every emotion of every single person in the room and couldn't yeah. hide it very well at all. And Jordan was so spontaneous and free. He, he dropped out of middle school to go on tour. Um, you know, he, he could care less what happened. And then you got Justin right in the middle that was like, we should probably leave now if we're going to make this show that's 16 <laughs> hours away. So, you know. Oh, man. And so, uh, interestingly enough, your influence um, was another three brothers. Correct. The band what? Chevelle. Yeah, and we grew up um, in very conservative, evangelical Christian home. Um, I'm thankful, honestly, for my upbringing, for, for um, my parents, the foundation and stuff they gave me. Um, but for a long time, we weren't even allowed to listen to any form of contemporary music at all. You know, it was we went to church, we listened to hymns uh, and the organist, and that was it. And so when like contemporary Christian music came around, my first, you know, CD was Jars of Clay, Much Afraid. Before that wow. would have been right across like, the river from me, by the way. Mm, really? I live in St. Louis, so they they were Belleville, Illinois guys. That's right. Yes. And, you know, prior to that was cassette tapes of Stephen Curtis Chapman and uh, DC Talk, when they came out with Jesus Freak, it felt like I was sinning listening to this. <laughs> so like, how in the oh. world can this be Christian music, you know? But um, I would, I had a, you know, dual cassette uh, player and would just play the song Jesus Freak and record it and then rewind and record it again. So I had a whole cassette front and back of just the Jesus Freak song. You know, I told that story, but, by the way. Yeah, well, we, Chris, we, we, Chris we has told that story. <laughs> we, um, That's awesome. We, we, I think one of our earliest like pilot episodes, we were talking about like our musical upbringings or whatever, and we talked about how we blew our minds, how we could basically <laughs> put a song on repeat by dubbing on tape the same song oh. over and over again. <laughs> And we were thought we were we thought we were amazing for it too, you know. Oh yeah. Um, so no one had ever thought guys, of this. Did you guys start off playing like uh, contemporary Christian covers, or did you just go ahead and just go ahead and nail it and, and go after your own original stuff right away? We started writing right away um, our own cool. material, but we were like Chris was saying, very influenced by Chevelle because uh, we discovered this DVD and for, Chevelle for like a hot second was marketed as Christian rock for some reason. And so we got a hold of this DVD, told our parents it was Christian. Great. And <laughs> on a family trip to Florida, we were driving, you know, 12, 13 hours Florida. in the back seat. All three of us were huddled around this little DVD player and had headphones. So our parents couldn't hear, you know, Pete, like just cussing from stage and we're all huddled around it and just blowing our minds and how three, you know, brothers could be doing this. And, and they just seemed to be uh, living in their element. You know, this is what they were made to do. We were so inspired by that. And um, so when we got back from that family trip, we started writing our own songs um, it, kind of in that vein, hard rock, heavy guitars, um, melodic vocals and and you know, thick song structure kind of thing. And that's where it started. I've always wanted to yeah, ask and, this question. And, uh, I, oh. Go ahead. Go ahead, Kyle. Uh, no, so go ahead. You, you are the vocalist and you're writing the words to this song. Um, yes. I, I grew up in secular bands. So it was all about inside my head uh, and, and dreams. <laughs> like, how do you go about writing 
a Christian song? How do you keep it in the vein? Like, that's really interesting to me because you do listen to the lyrics and then and then you see the South Park where they did the thing where they went they went frankincense or whatever. But um, how how did you go about that? That's a great question. I mean, I think when we started, we would just write whatever came to mind, and we had zero music industry um, influence, connections, responsibility, anything. Right, so we just wrote whatever. Our second album is where we actually started to be more i would say aware of the content not for the right. sake of trying to elicit a record deal or anything like that but more so for the sake of trying to communicate um a message that we had as a band and interestingly enough that wasn't to go and evangelize the whole world it was actually always coming back to like love of yourself and love of other people. That's cool. And I like that a lot. That no, thank you. Like that was a message though that at the time was was almost counter Christian because most Christian songs and most most CCM artists had to sing these vertical songs either either to God or you have, you know, the Jesus per minute in order to get on Christian radio, the G- the, which is JPMs. JPM. You literally had <laughs> See, to include the name Jesus in the song. I'm I'm glad it went there because that's what I was gonna ask. Is if at any point someone looked back at lyrics and was like, "Oh, this is questionable, Jeremy. Like, can we switch that up? Can we put Blood of the Lamb in there instead?" Or, <laughs> thankfully for us, we we didn't ever uh, work with you know a producer that was uh solely set on getting on the radio um a lot of our records were self-produced for the longest time even self-recorded um chris oftentimes would engineer those recordings um we occasionally would build a studio in our house to record it other times we would track at a local studio here so uh there's i think looking back there's a lot of changes i would do to the approach of how we recorded who we chose to you know, mix and master, um, those things. And, and in fact, you know, talking to Chris right now, well, no, (laughs) Chris was very rarely involved in the, the final production of it, but no, we, there was, there was one album and look, we, 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 none of us knew we were doing right. So like, so one of, one of the albums was a concept album. Um, and that actually probably tie into a lot of what we're going to tonight, but uh, album was called virus. Um, and, um, it was, a you know, you know, you guys went on a, a mission trip or whatever to Africa and we came back and you wrote about that experience. Um, yeah. and like, I'm like fresh out of recording school. So I think I know everything, which I didn't. Uh, <laughs> and like we, um, and Kyle, I'll send you a picture of this, uh, I mean, I'll maybe post like our so- socials, but like I, I, I was digging pictures the other day and like, this is like Pro Tools on like a CRT monitor and, uh, I mean like Pro Tools LE probably. Um, and, uh. No, but like like we recorded the basement. We think we're amazing. We did our own rough mixes, and then we send it off to a guy to get get mixed. And we're like, man, this doesn't sound anything like we want it to be. And we're like, no. I'll never forget. Like, I sent it off to this person, and um, and we're like, all right, all right, you know Chevelle? Like, yeah, yeah, that's what we want it to sound like. And he's like, all right, well, like, did you track it like that? And we're like, what do you mean? We we, we want it to sound like this album. You know what I mean? Like, what is it? He's like, do you know you know your guitar mics are out of phase, right? I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, like just didn't know anything right. about it. But honestly, the album ended up 
I mean, through through it all, um, I, it ended up being a good album. But you know, lyrically, musically, all this stuff. So it's I think it's I think it's amazing. Quite frankly, I know I'm I'm speaking you know maybe biasly, but I mean, for being an independent band, the entire career that you guys did, um, the product that you guys were able to put out, and the quality was phenomenal. I, I think. Well, and th- th- thank you for that. I mean, the other interesting part of all of this was you know there there was only three brothers and none of us played drums you know it was guitar <laughs> bass and yeah. piano and that's really hard to be a rock band with just guitar bass and piano and so we found ourselves constantly having to hire a, you know a, a studio drummer or a touring drummer and on this record in particular that chris is talking about with virus uh we decided we were just going to do this just the three of us and <laughs> but but everyone's looking around like well how you know how are we going to do this uh, no one plays drums and so we literally and, and this was really i mean youtube i think was just coming on the scene maybe but we basically just went into our home studio set up the kit we had bought a kit actually <laughs> hey, actually no we on. were air, endorsed air, by air, truth air quotes studio it, it was the, just your basement is all it was it was not actually <laughs> <studio. laughs> absolutely Absol- absolutely no, air no acoustic treatment like just all the kids basement. now know <laughs> they understand that yeah yeah don't don't just get the my wrong bedroom idea here <laughs> but but interestingly with the band even though we never you know had a drummer out of the three of us that could really play one of our first endorsements was truth drums sent us oh, a cool. whole beautiful kit yeah custom head and everything right so here we are we have the all this gear and and this nice drum kit and um i just sit down one day and i'm like i'm determined to learn this and and just uh followed a couple youtube videos and our dad as our piano teacher drove home like you will play to a metronome and i don't care what song you play how you play it but you will know how to play in time and that was on the piano right so when it came to drums though um i always heard like if if you want to be a drummer you, you know, you have to know how to play it at a metronome. And that was what set me up, I think, well. So we wrote this whole record, just the three of us, me on drums, very basic beats. Um, listen back now, it, I mean, it's it's kind of <laughs> funny. But if you know that like three days before tracking the record, I didn't play drums, that's kind of an interesting fact to know. So, <laughs> Yeah. That goes um, back to when we talked about piano being a percussive instrument. Mm. Um and I always thought that that was kind of a gateway to just about any kind of form of music. One, because it's bass notes and treble notes. Two, it's and three, it's a percussive instrument when you're actually hitting things and and moving around at different. Mm-hmm. Like your right hand's doing something different than your left hand. It's all percussive. Yep. Like yes, man. But one of my favorite things to do after I learned a couple years of piano was our dad um, got this like Roland sequencer that would take hard disks you know and you could record you could multi-track and then you could um change your patches out to uh, make the keyboard sound like different instruments and so one of my favorite things to do was change that out to the drum kit and like i can still remember c would be the kick and d was the snare you know and and i would play this whole kit to songs and stuff and so i wasn't playing the actual physical drums but i was learning timing and all that kind of stuff and then the I just structure put it to the yeah kit. yeah mm-hmm. yeah so um let's uh you so we you know we talk about will it right but you had some bands previously before will it we don't have to get into all of them but i mean um what in uh you know you've spent your basically your entire life at this point working towards um 
helping those in need and, 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 and poverty and things like that. Um, and I know some of that inspiration was, was Bono, I believe. Uh, yeah, when definitely. did, <laughs> when, when was the first time that that came into reality or focus? Um, was it Bono or was it, what was the experience there that actually set you on the path that you've been on for so long now? Yes, it was simply saying yes to an offer to travel to Ethiopia for seven days um, from a nonprofit that was in the country, and um, one of their representatives had come to one of our concerts. And for us, being an indie band, we had made a living of just saying yes to everything. So we would play music anywhere we were asked to, whether they paid or not, because we might be able to sell two CDs, that kind of thing. And so when we were asked to go out of the country, we had never been out of the United States ever. And for us, this sounded like a, you know, a paid trip to, to just go and see some cool things and, and learn about what they're doing and then come back and go on tour and continue as is. And um, that was really our intention was to go for an adventure. And when we left the United States and landed in Ethiopia, we then drove way out into this rural village. And I remember on day one, realizing I was never going to be the same because where we ended up was this rural village called Zawai. And it was a community of over 1000 children that had been orphaned from HIV AIDS. And every, every child that you met had a story of losing one or both parents because of HIV AIDS. And these children faced issues such as hunger and lack of access to clean drinking water. Um, there was no hospital anywhere in the village. Transportation was extremely difficult. Education was like one of those things that a child would just hope one day they got because the standard was that the moment a child could walk and carry something on their own, they were required to help the family go and find food and carry buckets for water, you know. And so I sat in this village, um, went to different homes, was, was met with just beautiful hospitality. We had a, a cameraman there that was kind of documenting our experience and stuff like that. And I, I was so broken. Um, I still to this day, like I said, was raised in evangelical church and was quote unquote, you know, saved at a very young age. But this was the first time that I saw God and met God and really felt like the scriptures that we were kind of made to read in church and my upbringing actually made sense because all of these passages about what you do for me or what you do for the least of these you do for me, that like God speaking, um, all of a sudden I was with quote unquote least of these, like the poorest of the poor. And so when we left Ethiopia, we were given these pictures and stories and names of the kids that we just met. And as we went through the photos on our cameras, and we're now looking at the, the pictures that the nonprofit had given us, we're realizing like, well, I know that kid. I know that kid's name. I remember his story. You know, I remember him walking me through his little village and stuff like that. And really what the organization was inviting us to be a part of was to tell these individual stories and ask people to sponsor them. 
um, not the same as adoption, um, but sponsor them, meaning build a relationship, write some letters back and forth, contribute a, a financial amount each month, and that would help set up their education and medical needs, water and food. And so I had seen this with some Christian artists in the industry before, but the only ones that I knew were doing it were very established. You know, they had semis and tour buses and large audiences and stuff. Here we were an indie band. When we came back from Ethiopia, we had one show at a, in a youth group in a basement of a church. And we're being handed these things and being asked to, to go and share our experience. So we didn't know any better. Um, we really were so moved by this experience that we put our musical goals on hold and we just literally started driving the van around the country and if somebody let us play a show in their living room we would play the show as if we were in front of a thousand people and then we would stop and we would just say hey three weeks ago we were in ethiopia here's some kids we met and and we would just start telling their stories and say like if you want to be a part of this we think that we can actually be a part of bringing clean water to this area and they don't have a school and there's no hospital, right? And interestingly, people started saying yes. And in two years, um, about 280 to 300 shows every year, um, all 1,000 of those kids were sponsored by somebody here in the United States. Awesome. And after two years of that, uh, the organization contacted us and said, would you be interested in going back? You know, you got all the kids sponsored. You said you would when you were there, but we hear that all the time, right? We hear <laughs> yeah. these empty promises. Um, we haven't really seen anything like this. Like, do you want to go back? And and so we said, yeah. And we took some friends and family with us. And I think this is what truly changed the course of my life was when we went back, we couldn't have solved all the issues, obviously. These children, are their their parents are gone. Um, there's still a lot of needs, but we went back and there was now a hospital that was in the community. The kids were going to school because the mindsets of the whole community was changing that education was actually really uh, crucial to their future. We saw families that instead of like this organization coming through and just throwing bags of rice like you might, might see in movies and stuff like that, they had actually invested in agricultural equipment and training, and now the families... Wow. including some of the teenagers were growing their own food and hunger was, st it was still an issue. Don't get me wrong, but it wasn't starvation, you know, and, and it wasn't the malnutrition that we saw in 2007. So in only two years time and 1000 kids sponsored, we literally saw not the world change, but the worlds of 1000 kids and their families and their community. And so it dawned on us that, if we took this same model to communities all over the world, what actually might happen, you know? And it was shortly after that we got back and we were at a festival. We were always on the side stage. We probably either paid to be on the stage or just came in, you know, with, with fumes in the gas tank kind of thing. And uh, we were doing exactly what we did at these small youth group shows and house shows and stuff we were doing. And we were doing it at a festival, and that was the day um, Stephen Curtis Chapman was playing main stage, and he heard me sharing our experience. And he came and met me backstage and introduced himself, and 
And I'm like, yes, I know who you are. And he said, I, I, you know, I have this tour coming up um, that I need to talk about my organization. But he's like, I, I'm not good at it. And I really, I'm not connecting well. And I just sat here and watched you move this entire crowd of people that you don't know. And they responded. And you only, you know, spoke for a few minutes. And I, I wonder what that would look like if I gave you 20 minutes during my show. And um, I said, yes. And that, ended up changing everything. Uh, over the course of many years, um, my speaking schedule uh, was more in demand than our music schedule. And now I tour as a speaker with all of my childhood heroes um, where I don't play music on the stage, but I go up and I share these stories um, and ask people to sponsor kids. That's insane. <laughs> good for you and and i'm really glad that you put that moment in that you had with god i think that's important mm. you know and that helps a lot of people understand where people are coming from when they talk about that kind of stuff because obviously this day and age a lot of those things are shunned upon you could have replaced those words with spirituality and essential oils you know and it's still yeah it, it, it <laughs> is the same concept and that's the beauty of it is once you find out about that so let's talk about this because we skipped over it you did a concept album after the first trip <laughs> called virus that's right and yes. and i'm imagining because we were talking about the words and how things played together and being a concept album i was i was sitting here thinking i was like what's a bad concept album who put out a bad concept album i mean it kind of makes it the thing, right? So how did your writing process go on virus because of your trip to Ethiopia and, and tie these two together from that to the second trip, obviously, cause that's when your music career kind of stopped and you started speaking. So how did all those things fit together for you? Real quick. I'm going to name some of the songs from that album. So put some, yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, arm the babies, kiss the mothers. Is, is a track uh strange how the finger points back at you wine skin virus keep the ammo dry uh america spare some change uh just to name a few of the context of uh, yeah. i mean this this album was a uh a, quite frankly an angry album right i mean like i mean you were pissed off i mean i, I you almost yes. had some groundwork there right i mean this wasn't like uh this wasn't your typical like i'm moved thing this is like you know I don't, i'll let you describe it i mean i want to set some context there no, no you, Chris, you're exactly right. Uh, you use the, the word that I was a, about to say. And when we came back from Ethiopia, I was extremely moved by what I saw. But I was actually angry because I could not reconcile in my mind how with a 12-hour trip across the ocean, I went from having every single thing I need and never once in my life lacking anything we didn't grow up rich at all i mean my parents would tell stories of sacrifices they had to make chris chris's family the same thing but we never wondered where our next meal was coming from or if the water we had to drink was was going to kill us or not right we didn't have to think about those things and then how in the world can i fly across the ocean and be in an area where it was literally witnessing children sucking the ink out of a pen because that's 
what they felt like they had to do in order to survive. I couldn't reconcile that in my head. And after no. the first trip, I remember um, every single time that I turned on the faucet to brush my teeth or to, to get a shower, I would physically weep because I couldn't, I, I couldn't again kind of the switch in my brain, like it was broken now, you know, and there's healthy ways to deal with that culture shock, of course, but to some degree, I'm almost glad I didn't know all the methods because what it, what I did was just simply take that, that, distortion in my head and confusion and anger and put it out in music you know so i just started writing it down and i'm i started like making promises in these lyrics of like i can't sleep until every child that i meet has you know eats um i i would write about orphans and how that what we're called to do as people that say we believe in god like we are literally called to two things and that is to God and to the least of these. And that is so clear throughout the Bible. And I was so mad at the church because I'm like, I never heard about any of this. Why did it take being in a Christian rock band for me to discover how two thirds of the world lives? And I felt like I had been isolated from this poverty to protect something and to find out it was to protect an institution. It was to protect, you know, the, this business model of the church that we we now know. And as much as this trip really brought to light the beauty of God in my life, it also really, really screwed up my theology and my, uh, well, I should say the theology that I was taught growing up. Because now love for neighbor was one of the most important things uh, that I could pursue. And so this record we put out did not fit the CCM model at all. Um, in fact, interestingly enough, um, some of the artists that I you know, travel a lot with now, um, I remember hearing a story of um, Toby Mac owns uh, you know, goatee records back in the day and, um, came to one of our showcases in Nashville and, and, um, we like had to cancel because I had gotten sick right before it. And I was, I was devastated because I thought this was literally the only time the industry had ever shown interest. And, um, we sat in the parking lot after basically notifying the venue that we had to cancel and watched the black cars, of Toby and his team and the record label come at the time that we were supposed to play, walk in, hear that we canceled, get in the car and leave. And to me, I watched my dreams drive away that night only to find out that this trip um, and the songs that we were now writing and subsequently the stories we would be telling would end up steering my life a very, very different way. So I don't yeah. have regrets about that anymore. But I also it hurt a lot. I I hope the people that listen stop you, stop listening right now and rewind two minutes and listen to that again. Listen to that again. That was amazing. That was. Uh, sometimes you have to hear the real thing behind 
and that was real man holy cow like the institute you're right the the institution of church and in, in the way that it's perceived in america right now is like you stepped away from that and you saw something that you never saw in your life and man those cars driving away were probably the best thing that ever happened to you, you said it was a mistake that has to be like that was that was this other thing yep this is this is real what you've taken now is is, is a real real thing so the album was angry yeah and uh, were you who do you think you were angry at yourself i i was angry at myself but i I think we were more upset with the church and with america honestly yeah um and this was the time back to something chris said uh, um bono and the one campaign was really starting to become very prevalent bono was the album uh, that everybody got that nobody wanted was that the one? <laughs> yes. Jer- I, I, was, I was gonna make a joke. Never heard of it. Never I was thinking it. about this, right? I was gonna make a joke that like Jeremy's w- the one of the ten people in the country who were happy that they were forced you to uh, <laughs> I was so up. excited. Um, oh, the- that was a beautiful moment. <laughs> let's let's stop for one second, right? Because like I, yeah. Jeremy, you clearly have been deflecting the earlier bands that you were in before Willet. That's fine. Um but I'm I'm gonna embarrass Jeremy a little bit here, right? So Oh god. So, this first band that he was in called Super Unknown, like the band name was Super Unknown. Uh, cool. they, well, they were unknown, and that was the name of the band. Anyway, um, yeah. like so, Jeremy, uh, <laughs> I, I, he had a collection of glasses that we literally called the Bono glasses because he wanted oh. to be like because it was like what like late nineties, right? Like yeah, um, after the fly, you know, yeah, baby. yeah, it was. That's right. Yeah, yep. yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, um, and I'll, I'll just tell one story that was freaking amazing, and this is not necessarily related so to Bono, good. but just in that era of time, is that so the the like there it might have been one of, it was the first album that Superno put out was called Colorblind because Jeremy's colorblind, um, and um, <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> So we, we, we're doing the show, and Jeremy's got on a black leather jacket and the frosted tips because, you know, it's the late 90s and the Bono glasses Absolutely. or whatever. Um, so good. And and Colorblind is like this ballad song, right? Um, and he had this idea. And, and, you know, the typical frontman idea, I mean, Jeremy was just trying to be creative in the things that he could do in, in, in terms of shows. Um, and at one point, on Colorblind, uh, because the, um, the album artwork was a photo shoot of these guys standing, and there was like rose petals everywhere, which I don't know where the rose petals came from. I that, still that don't, kind of, to this right? day, understand this <laughs> right so he wanted to have uh, this fan turn on at one point and kind of blow rose petals across Ooh. the crowd like during the <laughs> song but like in rehearsal like it just the fan wasn't working it wasn't strong enough or whatever so he's got like this tray of like rose petals and he's singing the song and he's throwing them over the oh, front man. row and like it's his cousin jesse who's like standing right in front of him and he's like throwing rose petals like at his cousin anyway so um i had to all i can think is coming to america <laughs> like you're the you guys are like the white guy yes. version yes that boy good that boy good <laughs> it's just like we felt like every show i've ever played i just felt like i was you know in a, in an arena of people and then yeah. when you're you know there in the front and you're throwing the rose petals out it's like this is awesome and then you when you actually look down and like your cousin is staring you in the eyes like what in all of the hells are you doing right now <laughs> like, he's got the big vcr camera that you had to hold on your oh shoulder absolutely 
what is going on? And even worse, it's like your cousin is one of six people in the crowd. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So it's like sick though uh, holy cow oh yeah, my god good. anyway uh no so i yeah the right, I, just, so that's why the I, refer- I don't know we're about the bottle so right. what's um what's um what what you know the, the the child sponsorship thing right i mean to um i think the biggest thing look and even me being around you and and even you know uh, the industry and, and seeing what it was doing i still didn't fully grasp um what child sponsorship would actually do right like you know i mean i mean you know you give this money and you don't really you, you maybe get the right letters or whatever um the you you briefly mentioned this but maybe talk a little bit more uh because i know you've done it more as the years progress what where that money actually goes what does it actually do like the sustainability that you're doing in the villages um um it's not just oh we're gonna fly over the town and drop the money that you guys just donated <laughs> and they pick up the money. That's right. You know what yeah. I mean, right? Like to me, that was the, I'll be honest. Like that was the mental picture that I had at, in child sponsorship when we were younger. Was like oh I donate this money and then all of a sudden they're probably a plane's gonna fly over and they're gonna dump bags of money in this town and it'll fix problems, right? Because you threw money at it. But w- what does child sponsorship actually do? Yeah, you know I had the same misconceptions. Uh, I think in my mind, I had these, you know, these movies that you see where the the plane flies into a rural village in Africa and then they they unload rice and stuff like that for everybody. <laughs> but it, it turns out child sponsorship is is um, it's community development. It's very long term and it's all about trying to work yourself out of a job. So from the moment that we go into a community and begin to work with a, a, a set group of people that that community has actually been the ones calling the shots. They've been saying, look, the most crucial issue in our village is um, lack of access to clean water. So therefore, we need to invest in a in a borehole, for instance, that could be powered by solar um, to pump the water out of the ground uh, to be able to provide access to all of the families. And so uh, child sponsorship is this opportunity for people here in the United States to build a relationship one-to-one because otherwise all you end up hearing about is statistics. You know, right. uh, back in the day when we were writing that record, it was 6,500 children dying every single day um, from HIV AIDS and things like that, right? And those are just numbers. Child sponsorship actually puts a name and a face to that, okay? And the the beauty, though, is that when I'm donating every single month, that money is not being transferred to the child that I'm sponsoring. Um, some people m- might have that misconception, but the reality of it is is that money is being put into a pool for that community, and then the interventions look like a new water well that benefit every single child and family, whether they were sponsored or not. It looks like a new school bu- being built. It looks like teachers being trained. Um, and I can't speak for all organizations. There's several out sure. there. Um, some are religious in nature and some are not. Um, the one that I travel with all of the time now is Child Fund, and I very specifically travel with them and, and endorse them because they share the same values that I do, which one of them is being that they will work with every single religion that they actually they don't have religious programming as part of their child sponsorship program, which I love so much because the alternative is things that I've also seen, which is an organization comes in primarily 
white people and then saying correct and we you know we have the means that you need we have food and we have water but first you need to sit through this bible class and you need to trust jesus as your lord and savior and then you'll have access to food and water and that's the most disgusting thing i've ever heard of in my life and so I partner specifically with Child Fund because they see each individual person for who they are. And I've sat in the homes of Muslim families that were extremely hospitable. And we sat and shared a meal together and we talked openly about our faith and we talked about the struggles of the community and we found solutions together. Um, and so the the reality of it is, is after 10 to 15 years, Child Fund hopes to move out of that village and be able to help somewhere else because that village now is self-sustaining. We we only work with indigenous people. We don't hire the white American to come in and tell them what to do. We actually will hire teachers that grew up in that village, most of which were former sponsored kids, which is kind of rad. Um, a lot of the government officials were former sponsored kids and now are like the mayor of the town or whatever, right? Sustainability. Um, that's it. And, and imagine this, right? If someone just comes and throws money at a project and brings some equipment and digs a, you know, a well, here's your water and leaves and is out, right? There's no ownership of the community. Most likely was put in a location where people can't actually access regularly. No training on how to keep this sanitized and working properly. And the second the equipment breaks, the solar panels go down, something gets disconnected, whatever, uh, it's completely unusable, right? But with the model that we're talking about, child sponsorship and community development, it's actually the community themselves that built this well. It's mm. actually the community themselves that were trained on how to utilize everything. And so now they have ownership of this and they want it to continue for generations to come. And so that's the type of work that that we've been a part of for you know coming on 15 years now. Mm. So I want to I want I want to I want to come back to um, the trip you just took. Um, yes, but, but, but let's 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 go somewhere first. Um, so you have not only you know not only do you sponsor kids uh, in Africa, uh, but you have physically adopted two kids um, uh, from Africa. Um, and um, thank you. <laughs> I'm adopted too, but I'm from Missouri. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> hey man, um, that's awesome. Can you briefly summarize a couple things? One, why, right? I mean, why, <laughs> why Africa versus you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, adopting Kyle, um, right? Yeah. <laughs> why not Missouri? Um, yeah, why and, not? Um, <laughs> and, and and just, I mean, both you had, you know, both were very traumatic experiences, right? Like I know, I know you're deep. I mean, she was found in a trash bag on the side of the road. Right. Um, um, And uh, with Evans, you know, Kat, your wife, spent months in the orphanage actually raising him from birth as you guys fought battle court cases to get custody of him and not knowing whether you'd ever be able to leave the country with him, even though she had him in his arms. So, what was, can you kind of summarize some of those two experiences and what that's been like? Yeah. So, our adoptions were birthed out of the child sponsorship work we were doing. Because after traveling to uh, several countries in Africa for a number of years, when my wife and I reached the point that we wanted to, to build our own family, um, we really felt like 
we first at least needed to look at the opportunity to to be parents to a child that would otherwise go without without uh, parents. The reality was I didn't have a lot of experiences in the United States working with children that were in vulnerable situations and in vulnerable communities and therefore grew up with without parents, right? The experiences that I had were on the global front in these villages and and also recognizing these are probably places that many of my friends and family will never get to ever. And so it wasn't that adopting from Africa was better than adopting from Missouri or that international was better than domestic. For us, it was literally what was in front of us. And I can't tell you the number of times that, that both my wife and I on trips like this, on short, short trips, you know, seven, 10 days, were hand, physically handed children oh. and, and told, can you, can you please adopt this child? Like the, the birth mom has passed away. The birth dad is unknown. Um, can, can you try to get help? And I mean, I, I remember one in particular um, was actually when we were in Ghana for our son's adoption. And the area that he was born was uh, extremely rural and very, very difficult um, situations. And it was near a malnutrition rehabilitation center, which is basically a last ditch effort for children to go if they were malnourished to the point of starvation. And they would typically go there to die, you know, but this was the last chance they had. And we were way up in the village where many of the families didn't have transportation. And so we're there with a vehicle um, and we're going through the court process for our our son's adoption. And beautiful lady um, brings us this little girl named Grace. And she appears to weigh about as much as a piece of paper. I mean, lifeless, um, maybe two, three years old. And we hadn't, we had seen hard things, but this, this one was really, really rough. And we were asked if we would go and, and adopt her. And we said, well, we'd love to, but we're actually, you know, here, we met our son just yesterday for the first time. We're going through the legal process and everything. And so this lady explains like, this girl doesn't have a chance. Like you have a car here. Can you at least take her down to the clinic? Right. Um, And we again, un- unfortunately, looking back, we we said no. We were so you know committed to why we were there. It was hard to see anything else. And finally, she explains. She's like, "Listen, this girl. Her name is Grace. She has HIV. And if you can get her to that center, they have the the medicine that she needs. And there's a chance that she could survive. But without that, her body, you can see, is actually uh, falling apart. Right." And if you're familiar with HIV AIDS, it attacks your immune system. So you can't fight off any, anything, right? Anything. And um, we, unfortunately, we say no. And we continued on with our journey. And when we got back to the city, it was a few days later, we learned that Grace had passed away. And um, I remember calling back to the, I was, I was so conflicted by this whole thing. I called back to that malnutrition um, center and asked and kind of inquired about the the medicine they had. What they what would you have done? I'm trying to almost talk myself, out, you know, out of like, did I do something wrong? The guilt, right? Out of the guilt, and, right? Totally, yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> the gentleman on the phone basically explained, Jeremy, like, we understand you, you can't help everybody that you meet and stuff, but if you were to get Grace here, uh, the the medicine she needed, it cost a dollar, cost one U.S. dollar. 
And um, I, I mean, I, I have Grace tattooed on my arm and it's our daughter's uh, middle name now because she, she didn't have uh, a middle or last name um, when she was found in a plastic bag in Ethiopia. And um, so we got to, you know, give her a middle name and I named her uh, middle name Grace to always be a reminder um, that when you have the capacity and the time to say yes, you say yes for what's in front of you. And the work that I do in child sponsorship now, um, I would say is always the the better option for children. We are huge fans of adoption. Um, over the moon about our son and daughter. They have overcome so many challenges that we can't even unpack, you know, in this episode. Um, and, and I would say, you know, out of what we've already described, a lot of their story, I believe is theirs to tell, not, not mine on their mm. behalf. And, um, I will say though, based on all of the trauma that we've seen play out in their lives and granted very short lives so far, 10 years old and nine years old, um, I would stand by the position that it is still better for a child to grow up in their community with their families um, than it is to be pulled out into adoption. And I say that as an adoptive father. Wow. And uh. so the work, the work that I'm doing now, night after night on these tours, going on all these trips and meeting more kids and working to get them sponsored, the whole point is to keep kids from becoming orphans in the first place. Because if they don't become orphans and the families and the parents have the vital necessities that they need, water, food, medicine, shelter, education, right? They have those things, then we could end the orphan crisis in our lifetime. And you don't have a daughter that will suffer every damn day of her life because of what she was put through from the day that she was born. I can show up as her dad, as her adoptive father her whole life, and I will every single day. And we have fought unimaginably for her and for who she is and for her life. But I, as an adult, can't recon re reconcile the trauma that she's been through. And that could have been prevented if her birth mom didn't have to make the decision, do I feed the other two children that I have back home and continue on our life or if I abandon this one maybe somebody else will find her and give her a good life so that I can continue to you know feed and care for the other children that I have that, that she had to choose right and so when you hear about a girl being put in a plastic bag it's not because she wanted to end her life at all it's actually put her in a common area in public so that people passing by will find her and get her the help that she needs. I can feel the grief and agony and the depression through all this. I, I got to ask two things. One, simply how do you go about processing it and unpacking it for yourself to keep yourself motivated, moving, and in and, and such a good spirit? And then two, you said it at the beginning of the podcast, and I think it's worth talking about. America and uh, what we have to deal with here and what you've seen and what you would tell people 
in contrary possibly to a lot of people's wanting to hear or willing to hear of of what needs to be done differently here that you've you've witnessed other places that maybe have given you a bad taste of the united states mm. well uh to the first part tons of therapy oh. um, every every single one of our family members is actively working with a therapist um on any given week um medication has been part of our story um again i, I won't get into the details uh, about my kids um simply because that's theirs to, to share when they want to and if they want to but i will say for myself and that's that's who i can speak for is like i i've had to go on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication and i never at chris chris knows me better than anybody in my life um have never been a depressed person uh a sad person um but these experiences really wrecked me yeah. to a point that i wasn't able to function anymore you know the story is hard enough um, to listen to being a third party it's wrecking me sitting sure. here and so Part of the challenge, and that's what's interesting about this conversation, it's a merge of like artistic creativity and um, charity and and love of other people, right? The the medication I remember years ago when I started it, it wrecked my creativity. I had zero ability to write music anymore, um, zero ability to dream up um, campaigns that would help people, and it also it ruined something in my brain that many people, uh, I think that they, they don't have or they don't tap into. And that's the ability to see far enough ahead to where you need to go even though everybody else is saying go the other way. And back to something we were talking about with the Christian music industry, there was a couple artists that would speak on behalf of vulnerable children, but they all had a platform and they already had success and for our story we had to give up everything if that meant that we were going to speak on behalf of these kids you know and so that came at a cost and it came at a cost of yes our career in music came at a cost of finances for sure it also came at a cost of my mental health and that's something i'm still piecing back together uh, every single day literally every single day. Um, I'm probably the most healthiest that I've been in 15 years right now. And I'm so thankful for that. And it's part of the reason that I'm sitting here in, in a studio and not just my basement, like we were joking about before, <laughs> you know, but, but an actual creative space that I took the time and money and energy to build out to say, this is part of my life. This is who I was made to be. And I'm not going to let somebody else tell me that it wasn't. And so um, a lot of therapy, a lot of amazing friends and family around us that supported us all the way. And part of the part of the adoptions and then subsequent work that continues after that plays right into your comment and question about America. Well, um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that part. That that takes welcome. that takes nuts 
or and, and I want to add something. Thank you. Yeah, I want to add something into that though. Yeah. Um, and, and we obviously don't have time to go in so many different directions. We could go on all this, but I mean, you know, we've been referencing the whole evangelical church thing, right? And so, like, part of the part of the struggle that, like, I know Jeremy specifically, and then it, 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 and me in my life as well. It's like, all right, so the concept of like actually even taking medication for mental health issues was shoved down our throats growing up as that is a sin, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. like mental health is a sin. Like, like, like you're not right with god which is why you have these things and in medication will never fix you or whatever it right so like literally just going through the battle of just accepting the fact that hey it's okay to freaking change a chemical reaction that's happening in my brain you know what i mean like that in itself is a whole different experience and evolved into that so like there's so much wrapped up into and that is a mix of america and america evangelical and, and white jesus and all those things right like you know and um uh yeah so and, and you know you're you're exactly right, Chris. And thankfully, that's become a little bit more of a common conversation to have. But it's there still is a great stereotype, um, especially within the evangelical church. Um, but simply claiming that you know is Jesus not enough um, yep. to to cover this? This is going to definitely lead to a part two because <laughs> I, I literally just came up with about six questions in my head. That it, it's cool to hear that background i i was very loosely organized with the church when we um parents were southern baptist uh raised in st louis missouri with his predominantly catholic and jewish uh played catholic sports went to catholic mass just because all my friends went and we could get wasted on christmas and it was all good to go to mass like that and then um you could smash beers with the preacher and and they do pull tabs with you at the carnival um amazing so it's cool to hear the introspective of this from from that view and i've toured with a ton of christian bands from zeo living sacrifice um all the crazy tooth and nail bands um yeah but i love hearing this introspective because sometimes it's hard for people to spit that out um and especially knowing Chris for as long as I have, and then listening to your background, like, I wonder if that voice still stops you from staying stuff like it did when you were a kid sometimes. Like, um, I wonder, like, because what you were taught is always there inherently. And sometimes when you are asked to speak about this kind of stuff, does that little voice in your head go, oh, Jeremy? probably just glaze over that one right oh kyle every single day i mean we are literally living it right now and and i say that because after all of our journeys and we still live back in the same community where i was born right in in rural maryland um we started to make the step back into organized church and we had been out of it for so long and we were met right away with questions about groups of people that we will identify with or have relationships with or hang out with or welcome on our farm for God's sake, Mm. you know, and we have by there's no agenda at all, except to love people for who they are and to celebrate them no matter what. We have a choice every single day to make, and that is, 
are we going to show people what we're for or what we're against? And I am trying every single day to show people that I am for you no matter what. And I can't participate in a church and tithe money and tithe my time to a place that in the mission statement specifically rejects you for your sexuality or your sexual preference and even further denies that you exist because you had, you know, a gender transitioning surgery. Man. I I like how you said that. You got to show people what you're for and not against, you know? And and that that's a life lesson. We should put that on a t-shirt, Chris. <laughs> that is that is a good one. Let's um let's uh let's go back, right? So let's let's um let's let's talk about the trip you just did and, and part of the reason yeah. why we it's funny when we we're talking about scheduling this, we're like, wait, let's wait until you get back from this trip. So talk about um the latest trip that you just did. Okay, so I went to Kenya, um, where there's been a drought for three years taking place. Uh, similar place that I went to in um, 2018. So the opportunity to go back, uh, to, you know, several years later and see some of the work that was being done by the organization was really beautiful to me. Um, and I'll tell you one example, like out in the village, um, pretty actually very very far from the the city, was this cultural practice called FGM which is female genital mutilation. Okay. It's this awful, awful thing um, that takes place. And it's basically a rite of passage for a girl um, to transition to a woman where they will get into specifics, but, but basically they will cut part of the female genitalia. Okay. Which removes all pleasure in sex. And now it basically, the woman is viewed as, just an you know an object to have babies and produce a family um but will not have any pleasure the rest of their lives and it's extremely harmful one physically to their body mentally as you can imagine um but some of these girls will die during the pro- the procedure from from bleeding out and, and you're in a village with without access to a lot of medical equipment okay so i do have grace for the for some of the communities um, that are practicing this because this is something that's been passed down for literally hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's viewed as a rite of passage for these girls. It's a very celebrated thing. So in 2018, we meet this girl that she is at risk of having to go through this. Her dad believes in it and, and her dad is a tribal leader. Okay. And I remember meeting her and she was in school at the time, thankfully, and and her talking about how dark this experience was in their village and she had lost friends that had gone through it the other part of this was girls being married off at a super young age you know eight nine ten years old because the family would receive monetary um contribution in exchange for their daughter okay so when we when i find out we're going back to the same village uh now in 2023 there's a part of me that is hesitant to go because like I don't want to be looking around and saying where's that girl where's that girl what happened right we end up meeting the same girl which is now a teenager uh, she looks very healthy which is astonishing to me based on where we are ge- geographically and after traveling all day 
and uh, we sit down and talk. Her dad's there and everything, and everyone's like getting along really well. It's, it's really amazing. And she goes on to explain that her dad had this major shift in his mind over the past five years since I had met her. Um, she got sponsored and she started receiving letters from her sponsor. The organization came into the, the area and started doing these trainings um, by uh, a Kenyan native, by the way, which is really cool. And basically went on to explain how these cultural practices could harmfully impact them. And so over time, the dad decides my daughter's life and education and future is more important than this cultural rite of passage and goes to all of the other tribal leaders and they have banned this practice from ever happening again. This is hundreds and hundreds of years changed because a kid sponsored that girl, which is now still in school. Okay, and so being able to witness some of that, again, has this exponential multiplication throughout the country. And it's not always about, did we dig the the well and get a cool photo next to it, right? Did we distribute food and now the kids aren't hungry anymore? Like sometimes it's actually about changing an actual mindset. Mm. And that's some of the things that I saw uh, on this trip. Um, And still also same time saw really hard things including you know the girl that i sponsor her name's alice we we sponsored her for a number of years um met her in 2018 got to meet her again just a couple weeks ago when i was there and she walked me down to the river where they get water and it was like a trickle of a stream because of the drought i couldn't even comprehend how they they survive and um so have have started the process of looking into what it what it would take to get a clean water well there. In some instances, that money, like we talked about, can be pulled together from child sponsorship and you can dig a well. Other times, um, like this area, the cost is upwards of eighty thousand dollars to be able to Holy put it in. Holy shit. And is so it, is it just the ground in like the desert area hitting actual Yeah. Oh that's right. Yep. I mean, we were standing down in the the dry riverbed that the water would have been over our heads three years ago, you know, and now we're standing in just what's a trickle of a stream. So, do do um, a lot of those villages migrate too? So, since the drought has been so bad, would they hear from other villagers like next door or whatever? They're like, "Hey, we got stuff over here," and or if you you've already sponsored a village, do people migrate to that village because they know there's more help there? Hmm. Um, normally not so much because a lot of these families were nomadic, like they would have to travel with their herds. And so they're going where the animals, um, need to survive. And so oftentimes the animals would be the ones migrating to the river or whatever. So the animals sometimes lead the families, you know, to where there are resources. Um, tragically though, some of the families we were going to see, we would pass by complete skeletons of camels. That's how dry it was. Like if a camel can't survive, you know yeah. what I mean? And so um, definitely extremely challenging situations that we ran into. But some of the wins were happening and, and we saw because the kids were sponsored. Like uh, Joseph in Kenya is now uh, a young adult and it was former sponsored child. And I went down into 
the riverbed where he would gather water when he was a kid and he was telling me all about it. And in the riverbed, it was completely dry. And then they had dug a hole down in these couple steps going down to fill up their jerry cans with water, right? And so I was like, okay, this is where you grew up. Like, what are you doing now? Where where do you live? Like, what do you hope to be? And he's like, I'm doing exactly what I hope to be. He's like, I'm an engineer now. And I was like, oh, cool. So I'm thinking he's like building stuff or whatever, right? And we end up going to where he works. And it, it is literally a water purification center. And he is tasked with now purifying water for the rest of the community. And he bottled a uh, you know, uh, a bottle of water for me on the spot. He showed where it came from, purified it, and we went through the whole process. And at the end of it, I paid for the water and then took the cap off and drank it in front of him. And I was like, dude, this right here is change. You know, somebody that came from that dry riverbed is now providing water for the rest of his community. And that's literally because some some person in the United States was like, look, I don't know you, probably never meet you, it cost me like a dollar a day to sponsor you. I believe in it. Let's do it, right? And most likely that person signed up at kind of a, a concert somewhere across the country. And that's the impact, though, that it had on Joseph in Kenya. Mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> let's, um, let's do this. Um <clears throat> What does Chaw's sponsorship look like? If it, it, you know, um, you know, you obviously have talked about this at the concerts and things that you do. You know, what 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 does it cost? Um, and um, and you didn't ask me to do this. And and Chaw Fund, for the record, this is not like a Chaw Fund sponsored nope. thing, right? Like you, this is this is Jeremy talking. Uh, We're but, all just bros. Um, but I'm but uh but we are uh I'm gonna talk to Jeremy afterwards. We are I, I am gonna get a link though to put in the description of this episode. Uh, and if people you know are so moved or have desired to sponsor Chad or whatever, and we'll get you a link to go somewhere else and do that. But just can you briefly describe what 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 does it look like for someone who may want to get involved? And thank you for that. Yeah, it's um thirty nine dollars. You do it monthly for as long as you can. Um, when, when we provide the link in the show notes, you'll be able to go there and actually select the child that you want to sponsor. So you can select it based on age, uh, country, maybe you're tied to a specific country, um, uh, for whatever reason. And, um, then you can select the child that you want to sponsor. You can stop anytime. Of course, we hope as an organization that you continue on for many years because of the impact that it will have, uh, at the same time, life circumstances happen because of the model, if you have to stop sponsoring, the child actually doesn't feel that impact right away. Um, they are benefactors of the whole community effort and the projects that are taking place there. What they would know is that there's somebody different writing letters and the funding is coming from somewhere else. So I would encourage everybody to, you know, if they're in a position where they can part with $39 each month to, to, to try it, to sign up and, and give, it, um, give it a try. I know for us, even being in a family that uh, our children, you know, are adopted and come from an international background um, at nine and 10 years old, they, it has wildly changed their worldview because it takes their eyes off of their own self and their own needs and their own wants. And now all of a sudden it's less about like what game they have on Xbox. And now, now it's like, oh, I, you know, I'm going to sit down and write this letter to this person that lives on the other side of the world. And as that, as their sponsored child describes their life and what they find beauty and enjoy in, all of a sudden it gives perspective to our own kids. So I view it as um, not only is it a good thing to do, 
And not only hopefully some of the stories you heard today, like it, you know, is truly making an impact in that child's life and the surrounding community. It also will change you, you know, as the sponsor. And uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing what I am doing now, and I wouldn't have built my family the way that I have and look at other people the same way if it weren't for that very first kid that we sponsored. Can I steal a question from the other podcast that we do? Hey, what would you, what would you do differently now that you know that you would have done when you were 18 if you knew it? That's a great question. Like you say, Does everyone have to think hard about this. Yeah, they yeah, do. no. no it, we, so uh, on on Signal to Noise, the other podcast we do, uh, you know, we have a couple like closing yeah. questions, and that's one. That's like Sam's signature one. She uh, she does, and it's it's a fun one. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, like it's you know because it, it, it's obviously we kind of talk about the audio industry professionally, but I mean like yeah, I mean you've been through a lot, so it's like what you know, what you know now. What's you know, what's something maybe you would do differently when you when you kind of first started off on this journey or or whatnot. I think. The first thing that comes to mind is that I wouldn't let others, other people um, speak into my life if they hadn't earned permission. Wow. You know, I, I think as... <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, that elephant in the room, you just pointed it. There it is. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah, because as a as a creative, as... Uh, an artist even um, identity is a, a huge struggle and and other other artists that I talk to that it's the same thing right and, and I know you guys know that too and so you can easily be tossed around um, and if you if you know yourself though and you care enough to love yourself then those voices that have, no permission to speak into your life have done nothing to invest in to, in your life. Um, all of a sudden, it's just noise, and you can easily block it out. But if you um, if you aren't grounded enough, if you don't have the foundation that um, you are exactly who you were made to be, then um, you can be tossed around quite a bit. You know. Come back. We'll, we got to do a part two. <laughs> we definitely got to do a part two. Well, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll steal. I'll steal Kyle's question that he typically. Oh has. no. Let's, let's, clo- let's close on music yes. here. What? What is? Yeah. What are you currently listening to? Okay, I, I'll bring it all the way back around. I'm listening to the the new U2 stuff. Ugh. All right, know, skip, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, thanks for being on the show ah. one time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one time I lo- there goes my second. Let me look at the calendar, Jeremy. <laughs> uh huh. It's full, isn't oh, man. it? Man, booked up. So okay, this is what intrigues me. I, I I probably like most people when they announce it. We have this new record coming out. Um, we're disappointed to find out it was just you know n- new recordings of old songs. Okay, but the more that I've looked into it and have have heard a couple of the singles that are put out. They really went back to the drawing board, the ed, you know, edges um, producing the record. They changed the keys of the songs to fit Bono's kind of new voicing and reimagine a lot of songs. There, there's even um, song lyrics that Bono admits that he got wrong oh, wow. and has gone 
and re-recorded and changed. One, one very specifically, we're, we're in Black History Month right now, you know, and it's like um, Sunday Bloody Sunday talking about MLK. And when he describes early morning, April 4th, uh, shots ring out. And that is completely wrong. It happened in the evening. And Bono sings that every single night. It was recorded as early morning. So and if you go and look, and I think that, I believe that single is out wow. now. Um, the new recording of piano and acoustic guitar, he has changed it to early evening, April 4th. And so it's like, to me, love or hate the new version of the song. That's not what's important. What is it, what's beautiful about it is this iconic artist in, in U2 as a band is is given themselves permission to say we got a lot right and we got some wrong and now 40 some years later we're still doing this and whether people listen or not we're going to we're going to go back into some of these songs that really gave birth to who we are as a band and we're going to say okay this is who we are now this is what we know now and we're going to go and track those same things again and i think that's pretty awesome yeah, do you think they give themselves forgiveness for forcing their music to everyone? Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I, no, they've they've done interviews about that. They've actually done interviews I'm just about that. I'm just messing. Uh, and and yeah. I do find it I find it awesome that uh, musicians and failed musicians at our age are still out there trying to find new music and giving hope to something that's going to change us. Like sometimes I have to force myself, but that that's really why I asked that question because. Everyone's like, oh, man, what's your top 10? What's the top 10 albums you'd be stranded with on an island or whatever? And I always I always try to do like eight or nine. And then I always say, you know, I hope that something from here on out influences me enough to be on that eight or nine or, or 10 or uh, all, oh, the yeah. last two, whatever it is. But it, it's hard to find new things and new interests, especially in the same artists, you know, because Chris and I mm-hmm. discussed it a ton where you get caught on that album that was the one that did it for you or the and, and then all of a sudden oh they're not the same no more they they lost it whatever but it, as musicians we realize that hey they grow we get old our voices change yes. our styles change what we listen to changes it's only evident that our music is going to change as well so it, it's all good change is inevitable I think uh, I think it's good. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jeremy. I, thank you uh, so much. We appreciate it. It's awesome. Thank you, guys. This is awesome. <laughs>